Father, I'm thinking about how those were songs that were like regular regen songs. In really one of the darker periods of our life. And the benefit of some distance beyond that is the ability to see um, your goodness even in the midst of just really hard things. And so I, I just pray over my spiritual family this morning that as we sing, you will never let us down. As we sing things like you are perfect in all of your ways, that seems, and it may even feel like today, and that's okay, it may seem like total insanity. But we entrust ourselves to you, knowing that you love us and you are for us, and that you, even in the midst of all that we walk through, are calling us deeper into love. And so as we open scripture to get today, Father, would you even help us uh, move deeper toward your heart? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. If we were in Cuba, what, what Caleb is doing for me now, we would call him my armor bearer is what we would call it if we were in Cuba. So that's what your title is now, Caleb. Armor bear. We're to be in Acts chapter 13. So if you got a Bible, meet me in Acts chapter 13. Uh, while we continue on in Acts. If you're new to Regen, just a couple things to know. Um, we tend to, I like to call it, binge, binge watch an entire book of the Bible at a time. So we're binge-watching the book of Acts right now. Uh, we've been binge-watching the book of Acts, though, since this time last year, and we're only on Acts 13. So we're just going to be here for a minute, you know. And uh, the book of Acts is a, it's a history, it's a biography of the early church, the first church after that Jesus started. What was it like in those first moments? Today, though, I want us to think about the nature of the Bible and the function of the Bible. And so if you are a person in the room wondering, like, why do Christians think the Bible is important? Today's for you. So Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13, says, Paul and his companions left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia, landing at the port town of Perga, there, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem, but Paul and Barnabas traveled inland to Antioch of Pisidia. There will be a quiz at the end of the day on all of these towns. <laughs> on the Sabbath, they went to the synagogue for the services. After the usual readings from the books of Moses and the prophets, those in charge of the service sent them, Paul and Barnabas, this message. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, come and give it. So Paul stood, lifted his hand to quiet them, and started speaking. Men of Israel, he said, and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to me. Paul and Barnabas are two key leaders in the early church in this moment. Paul and Barnabas have just been on the island of Cyprus, uh, where they have been preaching the gospel and performing signs and wonders. A guy named Sergius Paulus, who is the governor of Cyprus, along with many others, has put his faith in Jesus, and now Paul and Barnabas, their friend John Mark, they, they move on to a new place. In fact, in the book of Acts, we see Paul with other companions go on three different kinds of journeys that take them to various places in the Greco-Roman Empire. They get on a ship, they leave Cyprus, they end up in a port town in Perga and travel on to a city called Antioch. 
Now, if you've been with us for the, this series, the name Antioch is going to sound familiar because even at the very beginning of Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are in a city called Antioch. In other words, they have left a city called Antioch and found their way to another town called Antioch. That's why the Bible's confusing sometimes. In fact, there are 16 towns, maybe more, maybe less, at this time in history, all named Antioch. Uh, this is why this one is called Pisidian Antioch. Uh, there are, there is, I don't know if you know this, there's a war in, Mich there's a war in Michigan, there's a war in Pennsylvania, there's a war in Ohio, there is a city or town called Warren in 27 other states. So just like multiple Warrens, there's multiple Antiochs at this time, and when they arrive at Antioch of Pisidia, they, uh, they go to the synagogue. The, the synagogue is a house of worship for Jewish people. Paul is a Jew, and so Paul brings the message of Jesus to the synagogue, uh, where he always goes first. In verse 46 of this chapter, actually, Paul says it's necessary for him to go to the Jew first, then the Gentile. And he, he preaches a message that basically summarizes the whole Jewish story and lands it in Jesus. What Paul is saying is that the faith of Israel, the faith, the faith of the Old Covenant, the faith of Jewish people, finds its endpoint, its meaning, its fulfillment in this Jesus, this Jesus who is God's chosen Messiah to bring heaven to earth, not through military conquest, but through sacrifice. And so Paul brings that message to the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Uh, I've not been preaching very long, uh, but I've learned that when you preach, there's generally people who want more and generally people who would be fine if you didn't talk anymore. <laughs> and that's kind of what happens for Paul. He, he engage, finds two responses to his sermon in Acts 13. Uh, there are people that want him to tell them more and there are people that are, well, they'd be fine if Paul just left town. We'll get into that in a minute. But what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning is this sermon that Paul preaches in Acts chapter 13. Because the sermon that Paul preaches in Acts 13, Acts 13, verse 13 through 43, this sermon that he preaches, it is remarkably similar to another sermon in the book of Acts. It is remarkably similar to a sermon Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. It is remarkably similar to Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. These are so similar it causes some people who read the Bible to dismiss these passages as disingenuine. They are a reason to undermine the authority of the Bible. Luke must have been bored. Luke is the guy writing this book. Luke must have been bored, so he just kind of copied and pasted and edited. Or maybe this really isn't genuine. Uh, maybe Paul just kind of ripped off Peter. There's this sense among what we would call critical scholars or theologians that this repetition in Acts 13, this repetition from Acts, from Acts 13 to Acts 7 to Acts 2, these sermons that are very similar, they're a good reason to discount the Bible. Now, I don't think any of us uh, in this room or watching online are critical scholars. I don't think any of you have studied in the Tübingen School of German Higher Criticism. But we are bored and we are busy. 
So we're reading the Bible and we're getting into the book of Acts and we kind of stumble upon a part of the Bible that honestly sounds a lot like another part of the Bible I've read before. Uh, this is actually a very common phenomenon. If you've ever said maybe at the turn of the year, all right, I'm going to read the whole Bible cover to cover this year. And you get into Genesis and Genesis is weird, but it's cool. And Exodus, there's some stuff in there. And then you get into the book of Numbers. And everybody laughing in this room knows that all of a sudden gets a little like, it's followed by this book called Leviticus. Yikes. Lots of laws, lots of words, lots of repetition. And then there's this book called Deuteronomy. It means Deuteronomy, second law. Literally kind of just like a riff on the three books prior, right? To the point where like your eyes just start to glaze over, right? And you start to just skim a little faster and faster. What do we do with these passages of scripture that seem repetitious? What happens when the Bible doesn't catch our interest? What happens when the intellectual appetite that we bring to the text or this deep emotional need that we're hoping the Bible will satisfy? What do we do when that's what we need and what we come upon is, I don't know, somebody copying and pasting is what it feels like. There are going to be moments when you come to passages of scripture like this that feel repetitive and it, it's easy to write it off or skim past it. But what if Luke, the author of the book of Acts, what if Luke had a particular purpose in mind when he made Paul's sermon in Acts 13 very similar to Stephen's in Acts 7 and Peter's in Acts 2. What if, what if he was doing that on purpose? More importantly, what if God had a purpose in mind when it came to this part of scripture, when it came to this repetition in Acts chapter 13? As Christians, we believe, and I recognize, by the way, not everyone in this room is a Christian. Welcome here, I'm glad. Um, but as Christians, here's what we believe. We believe that somehow the words of the Bible are more than just human words. We believe they are divine. Theologians use the word inspiration to give name to this phenomenon. We believe the Bible is inspired. Not inspired like Shakespeare or Lin-Manuel Miranda. Not inspired like LeBron James or Michael Jordan. When we say the Bible is inspired, we are saying that as individual human authors wrote the scriptures, as they were putting down their own thoughts and ideas with their own goals and their own purposes in mind, the words they chose, even the sentence structure they deployed, all of this was somehow influenced by God. It was taken up by the Holy Spirit to accomplish God's purposes among God's people. To say that scripture is inspired doesn't mean that God dictated the words into Luke's ear for him to copy down. It doesn't mean that Luke entered a trance-like state as he wrote, and when he woke up, there was scripture in front of him. It means that the God of the universe, who makes himself known to us in Jesus, he somehow partnered with a human being in such a way that the words they wrote on the page whether it's a simple letter or a biography or a poem, they are actually the words of God. Let's just ponder that. 
as Luke writes the book of Acts, as Paul writes his letters, as David writes his poems, as they put pen to paper, something was happening beyond their comprehension, beyond their awareness. God was partnering with them so that the strokes of their pen on paper were now true for all time and for all places. For all of God's people. God partnered with mere human beings to accomplish his purposes. And because God was in and with and under that process, that process of writing these scriptures, because these words are inspired, because they are God's words, they are authoritative. They have authority in our life as Christians. They get the final say on our life and faith. They are the referee. They say, no, the ball was in the line or out of the line. And yes, some plays, some passages are kind of hard. And so we stick our heads, you know, you watch football. I don't, I, I take this on faith. I just hear it happens. But they stick their heads in that booth, right? And they watch the play in question on slow motion. And they come out and make the call. That, my friends, is studying the Bible. We slow down the action on the passage. What are the words? What are the context? What has he said other places? What is this like? But at the end of the day, when the referee makes a call, the call is final. Because God was in and with and under the writing of these documents, they are incapable of error. God cannot lie to us. He can't speak untruth. Therefore, the words of this book are incapable of error. They describe erroneous things, but they can be relied upon to be accurate. They are infallible. They are to be treasured. They are to be read and stored up in our hearts and evidently written on signs and bought at Hobby Lobby. They are to be read and stored up. But above all, they are to be obeyed. These are the words of a king to his people. They are a royal address to us and therefore are to be obeyed. They are not empty words. They are our very life. And it's the obedience part that's sticky, isn't it? We're good with knowing. It's the doing. Because there's parts of the Bible that are relatively difficult. Offensive and inconvenient to our modern sensibilities. We're fine. Don't get me wrong. We're fine with love your neighbor as yourself. We're just not so sure about sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. We're really great with peace that passes understanding, but really kind of thrown off by this is the will of God for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. We really like the parts about the Bible, thou shalt not murder, but thou shalt not lie. What am I going to do on social media then? I run into people, and so do you, I run into people who tell me, I follow Jesus, but I just don't take the Bible literally. 
These are Christians. They, they might even be spiritual non-Christians. I might be describing some of you. Now listen, when I hear the word literally, I think of the princess bride. You keep using that word. I'm not sure it means what you think it means. When I say that I take the Bible literally, when I say we take the Bible literally, what I mean is that we are aware of the literary form of the Bible, whether it's prose or poetry or, or narrative or, or discourse or apocalyptic literature, and we're aware of the conventions of how that literature works and the conventions and the way that the English language works. And, and because of all of that, we, we assume that the Bible is speaking truth and we, and we take it seriously. When Jesus says, I am the door, we don't assume that he's posts and lintel. When Jesus says, I am the gate, we don't come to heaven expecting to see that Jesus is made of wrought iron. We understand that he's making a point. He's making a metaphor. When we say we're taking the Bible literally, we're saying we're aware of all of these forms, we're aware of what it means, but we take seriously the words on the page and we obey them. But that's not what a person means when they say, I follow Jesus, I just don't take the Bible literally. When someone says that to me, here's, here's really what they mean. They mean, I follow Jesus, I like Jesus, there are just parts of the Bible that are problematic for me. There are parts of the Bible I disagree with or I find inconvenient, so I just pretend that they're not there. By the way, I've, to avoid any hint of plagiarism, some of this I'm borrowing from one of my favorite people, which is Tim Keller. He's had some helpful content on this this week, but they're saying, I, I, I like Jesus, I'm down with following Jesus. I just like to ignore the parts of the Bible I disagree with or find offensive or that are inconvenient to my lifestyle. Here's the thing. You can say that. You can say, I don't take the Bible literally. I do follow Jesus. You can say that. You just need to know that you are not following the Jesus who lives in reality. You can say that. You can say, I don't take the Bible literally, but I like Jesus. You can say that. You can say, I'm following Jesus. But you just need to be aware that you're following a Jesus of your own imagination. Because Jesus, when it came to the Bible, treated every word, every pen stroke, like it had come from the mouth of God. Jesus took the Bible literally. It wasn't up for his interpretation. It wasn't to be changed for his convenience. Jesus lived as if every word of this book was true. Jesus took every word of this book seriously. He saw the beautiful parts about hope and resurrection and life after death and forgiveness and joy. And he said, this is true. But he also saw the parts about slavery and murder and war these bloody parts of the Bible that are really good for teaching middle school boys to like the Bible. <laughs> he said of those parts, this is also true. He said those parts reveal who God is. It reveals who I am. It reveals his purposes for us. Even the inconvenient parts reveal who God is and who God intends us to be. So if you're a person who says, I like Jesus, I follow Jesus, I just don't take the Bible literally, 
that's fine. You just have to grapple with the fact that you aren't following Jesus. You are following a Jesus of your own imagination. You have to grapple with the fact that the Jesus you're talking about and following doesn't exist. Here's the thing about Jesus. Of all the gods you've ever heard about, of all the deities you've ever learned of, you know, the Greek gods in middle school, of any person who has ever claimed to be the divine or to reveal the divine, Jesus is the only one who comes to us living under authority. Jesus is the only one that comes to us living under the authority of these words, under the authority of this book. He comes to us and he lives according to this book perfectly. Every word, every command, every passing phrase, Jesus obeys perfectly. He fulfills its exact purpose. And in doing so, Jesus earns what we could never earn on our own. He earns the blessing of God. He earns the blessing of God. Then the most miraculous thing happens. This is the gospel. Jesus goes to the cross and takes on all of our failure and all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our guilt. He takes what is ours and he dies and he rises again and in so doing gives us what was his. He gives us the blessing. He gives us the favor. He gives all that we could not earn. He gives it to us because he lived under this book perfectly. There was this exchange. And in so we can walk with God and call him father. And, and let me tell you why this is good news this morning. I mean, here you are coming to church. It's Father's Day. Give me that spiritual pick-me-up, Kyle. Saw some other churches. They're giving out free haircuts to dads and all sorts of stuff. We gave you a $5 Lowe's gift card and an undergraduate lecture in the nature and function of the Bible. <laughs> Happy Father's Day to you. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm doing it because you can handle it. We're going to take it slow. We'll figure it out. What I have, to, here's the Father's Day gift I gave myself today. I grabbed you by the ankle and with reckless abandon just threw you into the deep end of the pool. Laughing as I did it. But, but listen, <laughs> but listen. You might be thinking this morning, I am never gonna be smart enough to understand this Bible. I am never gonna be wise enough. I'm never gonna be like, Kyle, I'm never going to be like so-and-so. I'm never going to have this. I'm never going to understand that. I'm never going to know enough. I'm never going to be faithful enough. As I speak, what might be rising inside of you is a sense of failure and hopelessness. And here's the other crazy thing. That is exactly the point. That is exactly the point. The very point of the Bible is that we are hopeless. The very point of the Bible is that we'll never be good enough. But the Bible also tells us we can have hope because there is someone good enough who has received all of the favor we long for and has applied it to us. This Bible, this book that you carry around, this app that you read, they are our life. 
They are not empty words. They are our very life. They are the words of God. They are the means by which God extends his authority over us, expands his rule in us. So that being the case, what about this repetition here in Acts chapter 13? What if, as Luke was writing it, he had a point? What if, as Luke was writing, the Holy Spirit was conspiring with Luke to achieve his own ends? What if the repetition isn't a flaw? What if it isn't something to be passed over? What if it isn't something that draws us, what, what if it's actually something that draws us further into the heart of Jesus and into deeper faithfulness? Because as we read these sermons, Acts 2, Acts 7, Acts 13, it feels like Peter and Stephen and Paul, it feels like they were sharing notes. Like they were all taking the same test and kind of like looking at each other's paper. And if Luke were here, he would say, exactly. Exactly. Luke's point is that all of the key leaders in the early church, whether they were apostles like Peter and Paul, or Stephen was just a dude who got chosen to be a deacon in leadership for five seconds, has to give a sermon, get stoned to death right? You don't have to be super spiritual people. You might just be this guy all of a sudden having to talk about something. All of these leaders that we do know about, all the leaders that we don't know, Luke is trying to help us see they were speaking the same language. They were telling the same story and they were laying the same foundation. Does it look like they were copying off each other's notes? Good. Because they were using the same language, they were telling the same story, and they were laying the sound, same foundation, which means you and I, you and I, thousands of years, a few civilizations, 12 generations of iPhone later, ought to be using the same language, should be telling the same story, or to be building off that same foundation. Luke is saying, hey, listen, I know Paul was late to the party because he was a little busy murdering Christians. I know Paul was a little late to the party because he was busy dragging people out of church by their hair and throwing them in jail. But Paul didn't just make it up. I mean, by the way, remember that Paul showed up in Jerusalem and was like, hey guys, I met Jesus on the road. Oh, okay, yeah, you did. I think you've been in the sun a little too long there, my friend. They're trying to build up Paul's authority. He's trying to say Paul's on the same page with us. He's the same leadership. He's telling the same story. This gospel that he's preaching in Pisidia and Antioch is the same gospel we preached back in Jerusalem. The consistency is the point. The consistency is important. In fact, the author of Hebrews addresses that consistency in Hebrews 13. I love it in the message translation. It says this, Appreciate your pastoral leaders who gave you the word of God. Take a good look at the way they live and let their faithfulness instruct you as well as their truthfulness. There should be a consistency that runs through us all. For Jesus doesn't change. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, he's always totally himself. He says there should be a consistency that runs through us all. He's talking about church leaders. There should be a consistency in all of these people across all of time telling the story. There should be a consistency that runs through us all. Why? Because Jesus is the same as he was when Paul walked into per walked through the gates of Perga, into Pamphylia, into Pisidia, Antioch. He's the same as he was 20 years ago. He'll be the same 50 years from now. He's the same. There should be a consistency that runs through us all. The, con the, the similarity in Acts 13 and 7 and 2, that's not accidental. It's intentional. There's a consistency that runs through us all. 
the consistency running through Peter and Stephen and Paul and by God's grace me and every church leader who's faithful, it is nothing short of Jesus himself. The bright red line running through history, Jesus himself. As I have a I have a profound gift. There are very, very few people in our culture that stand on a stage and are listened to on a weekly basis for 30 to 45 minutes. This thing we are doing does not happen. We have TED Talks, they're 12 minutes. Some of you wish I gave TED Talks, too bad. Um, I have a remarkable gift. I get to open the scriptures for you every week. I get to train other people on how to do that for you and with you. I hope that what I say to you is novel and fresh and unfamiliar and surprising and challenging. I hope you say, I've never heard that before, but I also hope you say, yeah, that was kind of boring. I, I want Jesus to leap off of these pages with depth and definition, like you went from black and white, holding the antennas up, to like 4K Ultra HD IMAX. That's what I want Jesus to do. Like I want him to leap up off but I want it to echo what has already been said and what will ever be said after. I hope that what I say is never so novel so as to have no resemblance to this same language and same story and same foundation that Peter and Paul laid down 2,000 years ago. My friends, beware of Christian teachers who offer new insights that make the narrow way of Jesus wider. Beware of Christian teachers who turn the grace and mercy of Jesus into a heavy burden of shame and guilt or a badge of honor and pride. Beware of Christian teachers who make the heavy parts of Jesus' teaching light and the light part of Jesus' teaching heavy. This book is given to us so that we would know God. Not just know about him, but that we would know him. And he has given us a means of knowing him. This book. The secret things belong to God, but the revealed things, the revealed things belong to us and to our children that we may obey all the words of this law. And stop for a minute and think about how God is knowable. And so we search these scriptures and we, we do it with the eyes of faith and we do it with a heart to receive and we find ourselves little by little starting to know a person a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And sometimes, listen, we open these pages, I open these pages, and the words leap off the page and they speak right to the heart of my situation. I mean, they lay me bare and they cut me to the heart and they give me hope and life and newness and peace and meaning. And I don't have to strive, there's no effort, there's no exertion, it's just there. It speaks to my deep emotional need or scratches that intellectual itch. It's like in those moments, it's like when I pull Jack up into my lap. I'm just ushered right into the presence of God. But sometimes, 
dare I say, often. We come to passages that confuse us and dismay us and frustrate us and disturb us. And can I just stop and say that that is a good thing? If the Bible you read has never confused or disturbed or frustrated or, or upset you, you might not be reading the same Bible that Jesus read. When we come upon these passages, what do we do? What do we do with passages like this? I'll show you. When we come upon passages that confuse and dismay and frustrate and disturb, we read with what Dr. Esau Macaulay calls a hermeneutic of trust. Hermeneutics, it's, it's what you did in English class. It's what is the author's intent in these pages, right? So hermeneutics of trust. When I come on a passage in the Bible that confuses, dismays, or frustrates, or disturbs, I am called upon, I'm invited to read with a hermeneutic of trust, to believe, as difficult as the passage in front of me may be, as unpopular as its message to our culture in this moment it might be, this passage is all the same revealing to me a God who is for me and who loves me. A hermeneutic of trust says, if this passage seems like God is against me, if this passage seems like God is against someone that I love, it is all the same revealing a God who is for me. And so I'm, I'm called to take every little word seriously instead of saying, I follow Jesus, I just don't take the Bible literally. And here, at the end of Acts 13, we come to just such a passage that confuses, frustrates, dismays. As Paul and Barnabas are leaving the synagogue that Sabbath, there's people that say, tell us more, and there's people that say, go away. And so Paul says in verse, uh, Luke describes this in verses 46 through 49. He says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews, but since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Do you hear that again? You rejected it and judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. How can a loving God send people to hell? Well, they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. So we will offer to the Gentiles, for the Lord gave us this command when he said, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for his message and all who were chosen or appointed to eternal life became believers. So the Lord's message spread throughout that region. There are two responses to Paul's preaching and those responses seem to contradict one another. On the one hand, it says that people judge themselves unworthy of eternal life by rejecting the message. It emphasizes choice and human agency, what you might call free will. On the other hand, in verse 48, two verses later, it says that there were some chosen or appointed to eternal life, as if to say, God exercised some sovereign will in this moment, maybe even what some scholars would call predestination. Now, when you were all in college, you were probably engaged in activities that the Lord may or may not have approved of. You know what I'm saying? Let me tell you what I was doing. I was staying up way late, getting crazy, debating free will and predestination. It wasn't just a party. 
it was a party. <laughs> we debated what you might call Arminianism and Calvinism. Wesleyan theology, Reformed theology. Free will, predestination. In, in the Christian tradition, there are broadly two ways to conceive of how God applies salvation to people. Somebody in the back might say, well, actually, three. That's another conversation. One which emphasizes human agency and one which emphasizes divine sovereignty. And did you notice in the same passage, in the same passage, there are aha gotcha texts for both sides. If you're like the human agency person, see, aha gotcha. It says they rejected it and judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. The divine sovereignty Calvinist people are like, aha gotcha. In the same passage, it says that some were appointed to eternal life and became believers. It makes me want to grab Luke by the throat. <laughs> what were you thinking, right? Why would you put these two things next to each other? What is it? Is it divine sovereignty and predestination? Is it human agency and free will? And if Luke were here, five bucks on the table, he would say, yes. Here's what A.W. Tozer said. We're going to get to heaven and we'll be standing outside the gates. And the gates will read, all who will may come. Human agency. And we'll be ushered through the gates and they will close behind us and we will look and on the inside of the gates it will say, chosen from the foundations of the earth. Divine sovereignty. There are moments just going to leave you with that. There are moments when the Bible confuses and dismays and frustrates and disturbs, and this is one of them. This is one of them. And y'all, this matters. How God interacts with people and brings people to himself, that, that matters. There's some tension here. There's some nuance and some complexity here. Some nuance and complexity, by the way, that I think defies. The Bible says that I believe it. That settles it, right? If it's pithy and true and memorable, it's probably false, right? There's complexity and tension. And when we come upon these passages that are like this, that where there's tension and complexity and nuance, our tendency is to throw up our hands and say, you know what? It doesn't matter. That is the most unbiblical response I could ever imagine. These are not empty words. These are our very life. Here's the most biblical response. You come upon the tension. You come upon the complexity. You come upon the nuance. It's, and you find it. It's not a hurdle to our certainty. It is an invitation to trust and to mystery. It is an invitation to lean into this God who forever will be beyond our total comprehension. There's not going to be a moment in heaven where after contemplating God for 10,000, 10,000 years, we're like, oh, I understand. Because if that were the case, he wouldn't be God anymore. So we're invited into mystery. We're invited into complexity. We are invited to seek, to understand, to study, to read, to listen to podcasts. I have a book, an office full of books that nobody's using. Let's get going. You know what I'm saying? It is above all, it is above all, a, a call to a hermeneutic of trust. To find in these 
pages, as wonderful and life-giving and mysterious and frustrating as they are, to find in them a God who loves you and is for you, to find in them a God who is always consistently himself. Amen? Amen.